Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Cher Krause-Knight, author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. Florida, for a long time, has represented this kind of transcendent place. We'll look at early land grants in Florida. For the Spanish government, uh, who had just acquired Florida again from the British in 1783, this was a big problem. And we'll discuss Reconstruction-era Jackson County. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me now when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under On a magic carpet ride A whole new world A new Or where to go Or say we're only dreaming A new world A dazzling place I never knew But now from way up here It's crystal In 1965, Walt Disney began quietly purchasing large tracts of land in central Florida. He died in 1966 before seeing his dream for the property realized, but in 1971, the opening of Walt Disney World had a profound impact on Florida that continues today. The expansive collection of Disney theme parks and attractions has made central Florida one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. Cher Krause-Knight is author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. She says she fell in love with Disney World at the age of eight. I went with my parents, took me on a trip, and I was totally immediately enthralled. But the thing was that it wasn't over for me with just that one trip, and we kept going back, and I just kept getting more and more excited about it. And then I got older, and I would go on my own, and... Pretty soon I realized I wasn't having the normal level of enthusiasm about the place, and I figured if I was that enthusiastic, I should look at it. And at that point, I was in graduate school, too, and so there were critical hesitations that were mixed in with my enthusiasm. And to me, the idea of having critical hesitations but enthusiasm might make a really nice book, but I took a while to figure out how I was going to balance all of that. Cher Krause-Knight is still an unapologetic fan of Disney World, but wanted to approach her study of the park from a critical, scholarly perspective. I feel like that maybe that's part of why it took so long, because when I was first writing, and you're writing as a graduate student, you're always writing for someone else's approval, your professors, your committee, whatever. And, and the first 
approaches to the this topic for me were more distanced. I was not doing much of the the personal narrative in it at all. And when I came to write the book for uh, University Press of Florida, one of the things that I really uh, pushed for, and I was lucky because uh, the reviewers of the book were um, in agreement about it, was that it needed to have more of these kind of anecdotes that were interwoven, you know, throughout the text so that you were having the research and the critical experience, but then there were these first-person accounts, too, of I took my daughter here, I went here, that happened, so that there was a sense of me not being this distant spectator but this Disney participant. Although Cher Krause-Knight approached her study of Disney World from the position of being a fan as well as an academic, she did find some negative aspects to the Disney experience. Yeah, I think one of the things, especially as an academic wanting to do research, it's frustrating how hard Disney makes that for people. Uh, the the limited access to the archives, while we, you know, on some level I might be able to understand it, but it's it, when you squeeze control that tightly, sometimes it has the opposite effect of what you would intend. And I do think most of what I've written would probably be. Um, more than fine and maybe the Disney company would even be quite happy with it but I don't think anyone should have final approval of a manuscript and I think that Disney probably in some ways would probably have less negative press that has occurred over the years if they had offered more access to work with those resources and archives. I'm hoping it will change. I think the Disney Family Museum situation uh, in San Francisco, they're purporting to have a more open-door policy. If that really happens, and if it goes well, it'd be nice to see if there's some kind of ripple effect there throughout the, the kind of Disney enterprises. Other scholars have taken a more negative view of Disney World and its impact, perhaps most notably Rick Vogelsong, author of Married to the Mouse. I think they're really helpful. I think, you know, there's someone like Vogelsong, I think, is a really good researcher. Um, I think his writing is more nuanced when you read it. There are some, uh, you know, he, he has serious hesitations about the cost Um not just uh, financially, sociologically, and otherwise of Disney World being here, but um, he's very responsible as a critic. What I had trouble with, to my mind, were people who were so dead set about being negative in regards to Disney, but were also dead set in not actually going to the place. There are quite a few of academics still who feel really entitled to critique the place but don't feel like they have to be to have gone to it say well I know what that's about and that's not a good critical practice no matter what your field is Uh, I think that's starting to change too but for a long time it was just seen as it was very kind of like uh, the thing to do as an academic to do Disney bashing and even now there are you know colleagues who just find it really charming you know in a dismissive way that this is the work I want to do. Long before Disney came to Florida the state was marketed to tourists as a place where fantasy could become reality. Walt Disney wanted to perfect that idea of creating a new reality for visitors. Florida for a long time has represented this kind of transcendent place where you know, in the 19th century, for example, there was, a, and, and into the early 20th century, there was a lot of marketing of Florida as this restorative place. Come back and regain your health, regain your youth, uh, that um, you would live not just a longer life, but a better, happier life here. And if you look at literary traditions um, in, in the United States, they 
Florida was often fashioned that way as well. And Walt, I think, was sometimes people don't give him, and I think, enough credit for being as thoughtful and knowledgeable guy as he was. And I think that in addition to land being available and being plentiful and being cheap, that this Florida romanticism appealed to him. And he had some family connections to it. His parents had married in Kissimmee, and his dad had... uh, for a brief period of time, worked down here too. So he wasn't entirely unfamiliar with the place. And I think that, well, that might not account entirely for why he was drawn here. Uh, I think it's part of it. It already had a reputation as being a, a place where that was kind of magical, you know, and restorative. And I think the restorative aspect is really important too. Disney World's meant to be a respite from your daily life and routine. There's a legendary story that Walt Disney's brother, Roy Disney, was visiting Cypress Gardens and was so amazed by Dick Pope's theme park that he called his brother on the telephone. Walt Disney was not yet in the theme park business, but Roy reportedly encouraged Walt to consider it. Share Krause Knight. He had been thinking about it, though. We know, it seems like at least since probably the 30s, he had drawn up some uh, plans and ideas. He wanted to do a small theme park on his back lot in Burbank, but he was kind of having difficulty with the city officials there. And at the same time as when he started to, he, he went to Europe, he saw it toward Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, and he started to get, by the, I'd say, the 40s into the early 50s, really interested in these other themed environments. And so he was sending out teams to Knott's Berry Farm to measure the, the width of the sidewalks and to try and figure out you know what worked and what didn't work at these themed places because there were some places he thought did it just all wrong and others that did it closer to right but he thought he could kind of perfect it and I think that's also why he builds Disney World because Disneyland for him wasn't quite right. Disneyland was Walt Disney's first theme park opening in 1955 in Anaheim, California. The park was quickly surrounded by urban development which Disney did not like. As Cher Krause Knight explains, Walt Disney wanted Disney World to be an insulated world of its own. So he only secured about 180 acres there, and here in Florida, 27,443. So the land holdings are vastly different. And I think in it's important to note, too, his financial picture was really different when he was building Disneyland. Uh, he actually um, had to kind of cash in on his own life insurance policy, and he was scrambling to get the money together. He um, had to make a deal with the the uh, television executives who showed the Disneyland series to, to give them a percentage of the park initially. I mean, he really scraped it together. He was the big believer behind that, and everyone kind of came later. By the time Disney World happened, they, they had the others had been convinced. And so I think he realized pretty quickly, because uh, although 180 acres sounds like a lot, for the vastness of what he was conceiving and dreaming of, it, it wasn't going to do it. And what in particular was probably really frustrating, not probably was frustrating to him, was this buffer zone. If you come to the Florida property, once you enter Disney's property proper, it's a bit of time before you actually start hitting any of the attractions or theme parks. And so that sense of an insulated buffer zone, um, these meticulously, the highways are of different quality in terms of maintenance as soon as you get on the Disney property. That's something he never had. And even I was just in Anaheim in June, when you go back there, it's boom, you turn a corner and you're right there. And I don't think he liked that, one, from a a logistical standpoint, but two, also from 
a symbolic or psychological standpoint. He wanted it to be a more transformative experience, and the buffer zone was supposed to be a point of transition. What is most alarming to some critics of Disney's sprawling empire is that it actually has its own government with special powers. That was the creation of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was in the works before Walt died. Although I think all the the official kind of the signatures on the legislation happened after he had passed away. And Governor Kirk did seem to really apprehend. How weighty these governmental powers were, and it's really kind of unprecedented. We don't really see any private corporation that's been able to maintain officially、um, be endowed with those sorts of powers. And it's a you know an incredible amount of responsibility that comes with it too. Most people, I think, who visit Disney World are entirely unaware of that. And if they are, they're probably not aware of the extent they have、um, within their rights to build both their own airport and a nuclear power plant. And we can all kind of ha、ah, chuckle about that, but but think about for a moment the you know the potential, the responsibility, and the the risks involved were any of those things to occur. So、um, if I lived here, I might. My concerns might be exacerbated further. Right now, I look at it, and it, it is concerning to me, and it's kind of a aha thing. If I lived here, I think it would be more pressing, you know. And I had a kind of daily deal with Disney. Cher Krause Knight teaches at Emerson College in Boston. She's author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, explore our archive, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily post today in Florida history. This land is your land, and this land is my land. California to the New York Island, from the redwood forests to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, today we're looking at early efforts to declare land ownership in Florida. Yeah, that's right. And、uh, as we talked about before, Florida at the turn of the 19th century was very much a, a wild、uh, frontier. There was very little settlement in most of the peninsula outside of、uh, North Central Florida, around present-day Tallahassee, and what we term Middle Florida, where the、uh, large plantation economy would eventually、uh, eventually take root. But most of the southern peninsula was essentially unoccupied. There were small groups of settlers who were slowly making their way into the interior. There were、uh, traders who were operating 
throughout the peninsula, trading with some of the, the Creek and Seminole Indians who were living in Florida. Uh, but for the Spanish government, uh, who had just acquired Florida again from the British in 1783, this was a big problem. You know, how do you defend this enormous amount of land if no one's living there? You know, it, it essentially opens up this property for, uh, for other colonial powers to come in and, and take hold and take root. Uh, so what the Spanish government did in 1790, the uh, Spanish monarch in, monarchy in Spain issued a royal decree that would allow the colonial governors of East and West Florida to issue large tracts of land to uh, citizens who were living in the colony at that time who in some way benefited the colony. So oftentimes that was uh, soldiers who may have fought with in the, uh, in the Spanish militia. Uh, we have... Uh, Examples here of, of uh, civil servants. Uh, the, the first uh, harbor pilot for St. Augustine is asking for 4,000 acres of land uh, from the colonial government. And again, this is a way to incentivize new settlers, but also to encourage uh, current colonial uh, colonists, rather, to populate the interior uh, areas of Florida. And what we're looking at today is a uh, collection of documents um, pertaining to these early land claims after Florida became a U.S. territory. So in 1790, the Spanish government uh, issues this decree. They begin handing out these uh, these large tracts of land and try and encourage settlement. There are a few large plantations that are begun. A few people take advantage of that. In 1821, Florida is transferred to the United States. It becomes a U.S. territory. So here you have all of these uh, grantees who feel like they are entitled to this land, even though it's a U.S. territory. So they petition to the U.S. government. And over the course of a, a few decades, the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, the U.S. Congress, uh, a number of land commissions were formed uh, to try and confirm these original land grants. Uh, so people uh, who were, oftentimes it was the original grantee or the heirs of, of the original grantee, had to come up with all this documentation to prove that they uh, had originally been given this land grant. Uh, so there are copies of uh, memorials, early original letters written by the colonial governors to these uh, early settlers, and all of this is compiled in a sheet. We have lists of some of the early settlers, descriptions of the land, uh, and some of the other government records, both in the uh, National Archives and in Archives in Spain, we have original hand-drawn maps from these surveys that were done in the 19th century. So throughout the 1820s and even up into the early 1840s, uh, hundreds of people tried to claim these lands, and, and oftentimes they were granted large tracts of lands. Uh, and we're, we're talking about not a few hundred acres, but uh, oftentimes uh, thousands of acres of, of land in this new uh, virgin U.S. territory. Now, we were talking about Disney World earlier in the program, and the number of visitors to Disney World in an average week is larger than the entire population of Florida was in 1845. Yeah, that's right. And that gives you some perspective of just how sparsely populated uh, the entire peninsula was. Uh, so it was incredibly important for the U.S. federal government now uh, to encourage settlement in the new territory. So in the early 1830s, uh, there was a, a bit of a bump in the road <laughs> for the federal government. That's what we call the Second Seminole War. There was an uprising amongst uh, the uh, uh, Seminole Indians living in Florida uh, who were 
fighting the federal government, and they were fighting uh, the forced removal of their tribes to uh, the western territories in Oklahoma. And we have a seven-year protracted Indian conflict uh, between the uh, U.S. government and, and the Seminole Indians. This essentially ends in around 1842. Uh, the problem is that all of those early settlers who came in the 1820s, who had begun cultivating and uh, um, building large properties and building up these small towns had essentially fled. They were scared. There was a, a massive Indian scare, and people were just afraid to settle in the new territory. So in 1842, the U.S. government decided to issue a, another round of land grants, and that was known as the Armed Occupation Act of 1842, and it uh, applies specifically to Florida. Again, the incentive, just like the Spanish did in 1790, was to get people into this territory. They wanted new settlers to come down from other territories, from other states, from e even from other countries. Uh, the stipulations were fairly light. Uh, they could apply for, the head of a household could apply for 160 acres, uh, anywhere essentially south of present-day Gainesville. So we had an enormous amount of area to choose from. Most of that area was unsurveyed, so uh, which posed another problem. But they could apply for 160 acres. They had to live on that land for five years. They had to fence and cultivate uh, up to five acres of that property. They had to build a house. Uh, and the, the, one of the last stipulations was that they also had to be willing to take up arms against the uh, any sort of Indian uprising, hence the term Armed Occupation Act. The idea was that the government could kill two birds with one stone. Uh, they could build up a, a large uh, militia force living throughout the territory that would discourage any kind of, of violence uh, amongst the, the Seminole Indians against these settlers. And they could also populate their state because the goal was to populate this new territory and, and uh, eventually, you know, have it become a state, which, which occurred in 1845. Um, and, and this was all part of, of the, uh, this incentive package, if you will, to get people to move to Florida in the early 19th century. Well, Florida is now the third most populous state, but were any of these efforts to populate the state successful? Well, that's a good point. Uh, I guess in the long term, you could say that, uh, that yeah, they were successful. But in the short term, no. Um, in 1849, shortly after Florida became a state, we had another uh, Indian scare, if you will. Uh, many of the early settlers who had applied and had successfully uh, been granted these Armed Occupation Act lands, fled. Uh, they, they just essentially, up, it wasn't worth it. They felt that uh, the threat uh, was just too, too eminent. In 1858, we have the Third Seminole War, uh, and, and uh, of course, then you have the Civil War. So it really wasn't until after the Civil War that you get any kind of, of uh, large-scale um, uh, population growth in Florida. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This land was made for you and me When the sun comes shining Then I was strolling And the wheat fields waving And the dust clouds rolling My voice was chanting As the fog was lifting this land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me This is Florida Frontiers. 
Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at Jackson County in the Reconstruction era. Uh, the challenge is really trying to figure out more uh, or less what is really going on at the time. As you well know, you only have pieces of information from here and there. And you have sources which are telling a story 20 years later, some 30 or 40 years later. But then you have some sources which are letters, you know, which can be right on the scene. Of course, you, know, you have to try to figure out between what is, what is really trying to figure out what is going on as best as you can and trying to make a, an educated but not predetermined judgment about what's happening, I think, is, is, is really the challenge about that, that type of research. That was Daniel Weinfeld, author of The Jackson County War, Reconstruction and Resistance in Post-Civil War Florida. Mr. Weinfeld is a lawyer in New York, but researched and wrote about the Reconstruction era violence that became infamous in Jackson County, Florida. He tells me about how lawyers and historians might approach research and conclusions differently. I think it, it helps in uh, paying attention to sources and taking sources, uh, viewing sources um, critically, um, trying to figure out what is being told in the source, trying to figure out the perspective, and trying to find counterbalancing sources as well. I think it's a very helpful uh, background in that sense. I mean, when you're taking the history approach, you're trying to, you know, to figure out as best as you can the what is really happening at the matter. You're not trying to make an argument necessarily one way to build a case. You're trying to, or to build, or represent a client. Um, as a historian, I think you're trying to, while you are perhaps arguing point of view, are trying, you know, your best to get to what you consider to be the most reliable and realistic depiction of a, uh, of what happened long ago, for which there are only pieces of information which you have to piece together. The writing of the history of Reconstruction in the United States has taken a completely 180-degree turn since William Dunning, the first historian to write about Reconstruction, speculated its horrors and failures in 1905. Soon, proponents of Dunning confessed to readers things like the federal government and African Americans ruled violently over whites in the South after the Civil War. This thought was the foundation on which numerous novels and histories were written that romanticize the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes of Reconstruction. It wasn't until the height of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s when a critical mass of historians began to challenge that interpretation of Reconstruction history. Mr. Weinfeld tells me about those Florida historians. I think the, the revisionism, as, as you might view it, goes back really almost to the late 40s, early 50s. You know, the traditional sort of Dunning School, which people are familiar with, you know, the kind of the gone with the wind, birth of a nation view of Reconstruction. They really start challenging that. Um, you have people like um, Joe M. Richardson and uh, Gerald Schaffner. And, and it sort of lays dormant, I think, for some, not, not necessarily dormant, but it's sort of quieter during the 70s and 80s. There's some, some excellent books coming out in the 70s and 80s. Um, several others who deal with the Reconstruction era. It's you know it's an uncomfortable time period you know because the within the academic world there is a um, you know I think there's pretty much I won't say consensus but there's a certain you know departure from the traditional again sort of Dunning School narrative that Reconstruction was a terrible time. But in the you know the popular public who buys the popular history book that's maybe not so well accepted. But, you know, it's questionable how far that, down that penetrates to sort of the general public level and how much that's sort of staying within the academic world. In addition to his book on the Jackson County War, Mr. Weinfeld also told me about his interest in publishing the writings of T. Thomas Fortune, a famous African-American newspaper editor who was born in Jackson County and lived as a child during Reconstruction. 
it's really childhood during the Reconstruction era. Fortune really brings out these amazing changes that are happening in the daily lives of uh, really everyone in Florida, but African-Americans in particular, where, again, he grows, he's a boy who remembers being a slave. He remembers an instant where the merchant was going to beat him for some offense, and his mother uh, uh, retaliated, struck you know, her, her master, her owner, and, and fled for her life, realizing that she had you know, committed the ultimate sin of, of slavery. Until starting off sort of some of the earliest memories of his youth, then just a few years later, his father is a uh, leading politician in the state of Florida. It's really a remarkable change, you know, uh, that, that he encounters and experiences and, and expresses so wonderfully in the After War Times memoir. That was Dan Weinfeld, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join our daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.